It's a great pleasure to welcome you to St. Paul's Cathedral for this service, which is part of our Mind of the Maker series, where we're interviewing different well-known people who are involved in creativity and asking them about their understanding of God, their faith, their religion, and how it relates to what they do in their creative work. Today, it's a great pleasure to welcome Clarissa Dixon-Wright, who has become enormously popular through her cooking programs, which began with Two Fat Ladies. I think, was that in the early 90s? It was in the late, well, mid-90s, 95 was the first one. 95. Um, and so we're partly looking at this in terms of being part of the Easter season, when we remember God's recreation in the person and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So before I begin interviewing Clarissa properly, um, we shall have a prayer and a reading from our presenter. Let us pray. God, who brought your son Jesus Christ from death to new life, we thank you that you have reformed us in your image through the life, death and resurrection of your son. We pray that we may be inspired by your creative love to live with courage and imagination, to turn from those destructive habits and thoughts which lead us to deny the gifts you have given us. We pray that through sharing our experiences of your love for us, we may be given confidence and hope through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from St. John's Gospel. Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. 
Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now that's one of the traditional readings that we have at Easter when Jesus appears to his disciples. And perhaps what's the most amazing thing about it is that these are the men who betrayed him and yet he cooks them breakfast. He shows that great hospitality. And so I just wondered as a starting point what your experiences were eating as a child with your family or at school and whether hospitality was something that you recall from that time. Well, <clears throat> the only place in my um, fairly over-the-top household that we didn't have World War III was at the meal table. Right. Um, my father, and it used to pain me to have to say this, was the gourmet in the family. And we ate things... I mean, an awful lot of my friends come and say, we had our first avocado pear in your house or our first smoked salmon or things right. like that. And we had this cook who was really my mentor because... My mother was a thin, elegant woman who bought her clothes in Paris and the cook weighed 20 stone, um, <laughs> who came from Derbyshire. She trained at Chatsworth. And she had this wonderful thing that when the children were told they could order what they wanted for lunch, provided they ate what they were given in the evening. Right. Um, and so we learned to eat everything. But, yeah, food was, I think, probably the only peaceful place in the house was at mealtimes. So you, and I just love the thought of Jesus cooking breakfast on the fire. Yes, barbecued fish first yeah. thing in the morning. <laughs> Delicious, freshly caught. Um, so eating was a good experience in childhood, but yes. it was in the midst of quite an abusive background. Oh, we had a lot of strife and turmoil. My father, although he was the most brilliant surgeon, was a very violent and abusive alcoholic. Um, and it tinged the whole house with that feeling of fear, you know, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Mm. Um, you never knew when it was going to erupt, but you did know that it wasn't going to erupt at mealtimes. Right. Unless perhaps the fish was overcooked. <laughs> and so how did you cope with that very tense, potentially always erupting in the background? Well, I did... When I was a child, I think what the British always do in the face of adversity, you know, you're gung-ho, you stand up to it. You know, nobody's going to push me around mm. and remember to duck at the right moment. Um, but obviously, later on, um, I became very likely because I took to drinking um, and I drank, I drank two bottles of gin a day and the rest... Um, right. And, you know, how I'm still in one piece is really quite beyond me. And you were able to function even though you were drinking that much alcohol? I've always had the, the belief, you know, this thing of all of us have one talent. I mean, we may have other talents, mm. but we've always got that one core talent. And in my case, mine is cooking. And so, I mean, I cooked the best meal I've ever cooked in my life in blackout. I have no recollection of it at all. It was only when I went back to find out what I'd cooked um, that, you know, I remember picking up the first saucepans 
And then I woke up in the bed in the house I was cooking in the next morning. It was a professional job. Mm -hmm. um, and I went down to the kitchen and there was this immaculate kitchen. And I thought, uh-oh. And then I heard my employer coming down the stairs with all her dogs. She used to sleep surrounded by her dogs. And um, there was no other way out of the kitchen. And um, so she came through the door and I was like a rabbit in the headlights. And she said, Clarissa, such a triumph. The entire county will be talking about it. And I said, I'm so glad. Thank you, madam. <laughs> uh. And, you know, it took me... I was five years into sobriety, so about eight years to go back and find out what I cooked. <laughs> and it was ten courses. Gosh. And some of them were really quite complicated. And so you always maintained um, kind of high levels of performance, even when you were... Yes, everybody otherwise... thinks of an alcoholic as being the sort of chap in the dirty Macintosh in the gutter. Um, but an awful lot of us um, function really quite mm. well. Mm. And of course, the job is the last thing to go. Yes. Because it's the job that pays for the gin. Yes. And yeah. you'd be amazed how many um, recipes I used to cook with gin. <laughs> um, and they'd say, You're right, it is terribly subtle. You can hardly <laughs> taste the gin. And you know, what I'd been doing was grinding up juniper berries. To this day, I can't stand the smell of juniper berries. Really? And so that drive to drink all the time was part of also trying to escape things that were too painful to deal with when you were sober. Would that be...? Yes, I mean, I do believe that um, alcoholism is an illness and an mm. inherited illness. And in my case, there's an awful lot of it in my extended family. Um, but I think also what it does is it, it desensitises the pain. Yes. Um, and the pain of my mother dying, mm. just when I thought we were winning, um, was just too much, really. And at what point in your life was that? How old were you? When... I was 25. Right. And so until that point, you'd lived with alcohol quite easily, as I it didn't were. drink. You didn't drink at I all? I didn't drink at all. No. I was not going to be an alcoholic like so many others in my family. And um, what I did <clears throat> was I was a workaholic. Right. You know, because... Yes. I think it was a young man who was actually becoming a priest who said, you know, um, it's like having ten pots and nine lids. And you're always mm. sort of having yes, to yeah. keep a careful eye on what's boiling over. And in my case, it was work. And I was very successful. I was a successful barrister. Um, you know, I got platitudes from people who were in a position to know and, you know, the girl most likely to succeed. And... Um, you know, I just worked all the hours that God sent. Yes, yes. I was very boring. <laughs> so your life took a very sharp turn after your mother and your father died at that point as well? My father died six months later. Right. But by that time I was really drinking. Okay. Um, it was almost as though I'd done all the things I'd done to prove a point to my father. You know, rub his nose in the fact mm. that I was a success and to please my mother. And then there was nobody to show off to anymore. Right. Um, and say, so what's the point? You know? So you lost that sense of purpose in your life? Yeah, yes. I lost any sense of purpose at all. And I used to, I remember saying to God, um, you know, AK God, let's play Russian roulette. Right. And I got to the stage where every bottle I opened, you know, was this going to be the one that killed me? And I remember years later a priest saying to me, whatever made you think 
clearly so that God would lay the revolver. Right, yes, yes. So although at the time you felt that li your life was without value, um, and in a sense you, you challenged God on that front. Yeah. Um, believing that God valued your life was not something that you could easily relate to. No. I mean, it was very strange. My mother had a very secure faith. Mm. Um, it wasn't particularly a religious faith in the sense of going to church. It was um, God was her friend. Right. And she used to go and park her car on a WLA line with flashes and say, let's go and have lunch. And I'd say, Ma, you can't leave the car here. And she'd go, it is not for you, Clarissa, to define the perimeters of what God can and cannot do. <laughs> Uh, and she would sit there eating her lunch and you'd watch the traffic wardens going past the windows and um, I'd be twitching yes. and we'd go out and there wasn't even a ticket you know. <laughs> uh, and um, she did have this, this very real um, belief that God was her friend and did you look at that with uh, that faith with some kind of envy you know, no did I you... looked at it with pure you know, sort of disdain, I think right. is the word. Um, I used to, my father was such a forceful and powerful person and an atheist. Mm. And here was my mother who, you know, she'd get black eyes and she'd mm. get broken bones. You know, how could she be happy with her life? How could she enjoy the, the, de the day mm. or say, you know, look, here, I can still move my hands, you know, or whatever. Um, and so I used to think, oh, no, no, she's got it wrong. Yes, yeah. Um, and, you know, God is, if God is there. And I think I always thought God was there, but I didn't actually think that necessarily God was on the winning side. Or that God necessarily cared about you or your mother, for example. Yeah, um, I think that's right. Um, I, was quite, I was, think I was prepared to believe that he cared about my mother. Um, if that's what she wanted, but I mm. certainly didn't think he cared about me. Right, right. Um, and, you know, I had to do it. Yes. Self do it. Um, you know, if I didn't do it for myself, I wasn't going to ask anybody for help. Well, who were you going to ask anyway? Um, and if I didn't do it, then it wouldn't be done. Mm, mm. And I had to force it and force it um, so that I would be a success. Right. And I didn't even perceive, I think, that it would have anything to do with God. Um, you know, it was a... I suppose it was quite a black place to be. Yes, yes. Um, but I was so driven with yes. this workaholism and the desire to prove to my father um, that, that I didn't really think about it that much. Mm, mm. But I didn't pray. I didn't talk to God. And so this time in your life that was very dark and very black when you were dependent on alcohol... Well, even before I was dependent on yes. alcohol, yeah. I mean, once I was dependent on alcohol, at least I had the alcohol. Yes, yes. Um, but it was not a fun place to be. And I remember once, before I finally got into recovery, trying to give up drinking. Mm. And I had, oh, I don't know, three or four weeks when I didn't drink. And it was really frightening. Mm, mm. It really was. I think it's, you know, I've been in some quite frightening situations in my life, but this was the most frightening. Right. Because there was nothing. There was nothing to shield you from the pain. And nothing to shield me from the pain, from the fear, um, from thoughts of, you know, 
how was I going to run my life? Mm, mm. Um, and my mother always used to say, <coughs> leave it to God, Clarissa, he has a better imagination than you have. <laughs> and, um, you know, I wasn't prepared to accept that. No. If I, you know, alcoholics and addicts are great control freaks. Mm. They'd want to control everything, not just about their own lives, but in the world in general. And, um, you know, I used to, I think I used to think that if I turned over the wrong way in bed, the San Andreas fort would crumble. <laughs> um, you know, that I had to control everything. And if I didn't, then it would, just wouldn't work. So you lived with a lot of pressure? Yes. Yes, yes. Um, and I was very aggressive and achievist. You know, I wanted to, I wanted mm. to win. Mm. Winning was always, even when I was in a state where I wasn't in any position to win anything, mm. um, you know, winning was the important thing, but winning was down to me. Yes, yes. That there was nothing beyond me. And yet I must have believed in something, because I often think since, that if all I thought there was out there was a, a hole in the ground, mm. then I'd have gone, gone to it. Yes, yes. But I wasn't going to do that, because I was brought up that, you know, suicide was despair, and despair was the ultimate sin. Right, right. Um, and so, you know, it, it was down to, down to something else to pull yes. the trigger. Yes. And so, living what was really a very self-destructive life. Oh, about as self-destructive. I mean, it always amazes me that I'm still in one piece. Yes, yes. I was always turning over cars. You know, real dukes of hazard flip into ditches. <laughs> oh, God. I remember a small three-year-old saying to me, looking at this upside-down car, because his mother had come to collect me, we drive our cars the other way up. <laughs> um, you know, and always, always pushing, pushing the excesses. Mm, mm. Um, you know, I didn't really do drugs because um, they didn't appeal to me. I mean, I, I took amphetamines so I could stay awake longer to drink more. Right. Um, but um, it, was, it was not a... There was no enjoyment. In no. It. I mean, whereas, you know, people drink, you know, have a glass of wine or something for pleasure. Mm. It wasn't like that. It wasn't about the taste of the alcohol. Mm. It was, um, it was the, what it would do. And, um, you know, I think that... Um, well, I didn't believe that I would be lucky enough to die. Gosh. Um, early. Yes, yes. And um, so I just kept on and on. And in the end, it was just, you know, there's a saying about being sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm. And I just had no energy, no hope, no nothing. I think it's the absence of hope. Mm. Um, the, the Inquisition, wasn't it, that had a torture where they let you out of your cell and you thought you were going to escape. And you weren't, and everybody said that, that was the worst. Of yes, it, you yes. You know, because the hope was removed. So, um, and what then led you to a point of ending that self-destructiveness? God. Oh, God. I mean, I remember I was cleaning the burnt jam off these quarry tiles, mm. and if you consider that the frontispiece's aqueduct is held up by burnt sugar, <laughs> that's what holds it together and has done for three hundred years. 
Um, it's not easy to clean burnt jam off corridors. And because I was on my knees, mm. and because I really felt that I couldn't go on even doing what I was doing, um, I remember saying, OK, God, if you're up there, please do something, because I simply can't go on. And then there was this sequence of events which weren't anything to do with me at all. I mean, the very next day, I was taken away in a police car right. from the place where I was working um, at Wooden Underwood um, for a breathalyzer I don't even remember taking. <laughs> so I certainly didn't turn up in court. Mm. And um, I remember I was driving down this very long drive of this stately home as the house party was coming up it for the weekend. And I was the cook. Right. And sort of getting backed out, <laughs> out of the back of the police car. And um, then there was this whole sequence of events. And I wasn't kicking and screaming against them because I didn't even realise they were happening until I looked back on them. Yes. And then the next thing I knew, really, I was in, a, in an alcoholic treatment centre mm. um, and going to AA meetings. And... Um, and I've been sober ever since, and that was 26 years ago. Yeah. So I have no doubt whatsoever that it was God. Yes, yeah. Um, and I don't know that I necessarily, in the beginning, when I realised that, that I actually liked that. <laughs> that you know, it had been done for me. Yes, yeah. Um, and it was back to leave it to God, Clarissa, he has a better imagination than you do, because... I had no idea what I was going to do mm. with the rest of my life. I was... My first birthday in sobriety was my 40th birthday. I remember this school friend of mine sent me a card, you know, one's life begins at 40. Yes. Saying, may this be the only cliche of your life. <laughs> and, um, and then what happened to me in the intervening years was not something I could ever have dreamed of. And no. if anybody told me, that my life was going to be what it was. And um, I just looked at them as though they were mad. Yes, yes. We're now going to have um, a hymn uh, sung by a baritone, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, which I know has particular significance for you. When I was in my treatment centre, I used to go, this friend of mine and I used to go down to the um, little church in the village. Mm. And for some reason, they sang it every week. And quite often we were the only people in there. Right. And the organist would say, obviously wanting her tea, to the deaconess, you know, shall we just sing the first and last verses? Mm. And she'd go, no, no, it's a beautiful hymn, let's sing all the verses. And it was only after I had it as one of my things on Desert Island Disc that I discovered it was written by the um, Quaker poet James Whittier, um, against the um, evils of alcohol. Ah, right. And that it's actually, it used to begin, oh, Lord, dear Lord and Father of mankind, forgive our fuddled ways. <laughs> and um, I still love it. It's, I shall have it at my funeral. <laughs> it's a very resonant hymn, yes. <laughs> so that still small voice of calm, is that something that came to you in, in treatment as you began to I think it, confront <clears throat> those things. I think it came after treatment. Mm. I think it came gradually. 
um, over the next five years of recovery. Um, because I think that, you know, my life up until that point had been so turbulent that, mm. um, that it was, that's what I wanted, that still small voice of calm. Mm. And that is very much to me what God is. Right. You know, in all the things that I've done in my intervening years, and some of them have been quite exciting. Yes. It's still that, that moment of peace, that moment of calm, that is the best thing. Yes. Where you feel most present to God, or God most present yeah. to you. Yes. You know, sometimes sort of out in the open, you know, mm. it's, with the exception of places like this, it's, it's not so much churches as the countryside um, or looking at the sea or one of the great waterfalls that is um, important to me. Um, and I, get, I feel closer to God. So being part of God's creation, seeing God's creation, is what helps you perhaps live creatively yourself. Yes, very possibly. After all, a lot of the things growing about you are things you can cook with. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know, whether they're actual fruit and vegetables or herbs or mm, whatever. Mm. Um, and um, you know, I still get a huge amount of pleasure out of cooking and out of food. Um, and when you invent something, for want of a better word, mm. when you create a combination of flavours that um, perhaps what you don't think anybody has done before. Um, or when you get a really beautiful piece of beef or a perfect potato, mm. you think, when did you last go, ah, oh, over a potato? <laughs> uh, not, not easy these days. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, that, um, that I think, yeah, well done. <laughs> Good old God. <laughs> so cooking is part of the way in which you engage with the creative spirit of God. And in a sense, it sounds like you forget yourself in that moment. Yes, of... I think that's very right. I think, you know, I always say that, that cooking is my only talent. Um, you said they're my most natural talent. Um, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But um, the, um, it's something that I was never taught. Mm -mm. It's something that comes from within me. Mm. Um, you know, it must be wonderful to be able to write a piece of music or um, paint a picture. None of those things I can do. Um, but, I, boy, I can cook. Um, you know, and I, if I have a dinner party, most of the time I quite happily put the food on the table and say, have a lovely time and go off to bed, <laughs> you know, because I've done my bit. Yes. Um, I think I'm, I'm a natural domestic servant. <laughs> um, and... Um, you know, so when you get those bits in the New Testament um, where, you know, when I read about the Last Supper, mm. you know, I can almost taste the lamb. Mm -mm. And I just hope that, you know, it was well cooked and that <laughs> the bread was well prepared or the unleavened bread was well prepared. Um, because it is something that, that endlessly... You know, every year, I, a few years ago, well, it's quite a few years ago now, I decided that I was really only going to eat seasoned. Yes. Um, and the difference it makes to wait for the first asparagus, to wait for the first tomatoes mm. to ripen mm. at home, um, is, is 
it's something, you know, it keeps my, my love of it alive. Mm. And um, I do believe that um, God must have had a great deal of fun creating things. I mean, I know we all came out of the oceans and things like that. Mm. But I like to think of, um, you know, God sitting up there thinking, no, I don't quite like that tomato, or I don't quite like that strawberry. Let's just twitch it a bit. Yes, yes. And, you know, as God can do anything, why not? <laughs> um, I mean, you talk about cooking as a God-given talent. Um, I mean, many people would say that you're a very gifted person in lots of areas, in that you had a very strong academic background, you're a barrister, um, and it might be said by some people that, you know, society values the intellect over something creative like cooking. Well, How when I got sober, I went back to the law. Oh, yes. Um, because I had no money. Um, it's, um, it's quite a regular occurrence in my life. I'm rather <laughs> better at spending money um, than most people. And um, I... Um, so I, I'd been running books for cooks, which I found quite by accident. I mean, that was another sort of, you know, leave it to God. Um, because I was walking down the Portobello Road, and this friend of mine who'd been a Valium addict had a panic attack. And um, he saw this sign, and the sign was only out for one day, because she left it out and it got nicked, saying, Annie's Restaurant at Books for Cooks. And so we went in there and had a cup of tea. Um, and then I thought, what a lovely place, and I kept going back. And then one day, um, the woman who owned the shop had been told by her doctor to go away and have a rest because she was too stressed. And um, the woman who was going to run the shop rang up to say she'd broken her leg and couldn't do it. And I found myself saying, don't worry, Heidi, I'll run the shop for you. And I thought, I was still in the halfway house of my treatment centre. Right, right. Um, and um, I remember after a couple of weeks, she went off leaving me with all the bank mandates and things. And I was t really scared. Mm. And um, the telephone rang and I picked it up. And um, it was Elizabeth David. Now oh, I'm yes. of that generation. And I dropped the telephone. And when <laughs> I got it again, I picked uh -huh. it up and she said... Are you all right? And I said, I mean, I didn't know. No. And I said, well, you know, it's rather like, um, you know, for someone of my generation picking up the telephone and it was God. I remember <laughs> saying this to her. And so after that, she used to ring up and she'd say, God calling. <laughs> um, and I, after that, I thought, well, I can do this. You know? Yes. If I can talk to Elizabeth David, I can do this. Um, and then, unfortunately, Heidi, well, not unfortunately, but Heidi got well and came back. Mm. And I thought, well, I'd better go back to the law and make some money. Because, mm. you know, you don't make a lot of money running a bookshop. No. Somebody else's bookshop at that. Um, so I went back to the law. And um, I hated it. Because I'd become a lawyer, I'd become a barrister, and I went back as a solicitor. Um, I'd become a barrister because I hated my father and he hated lawyers. It's only further down the line I discovered the reason he hated lawyers because he wasn't allowed to be one. <laughs> um, and I, um, <coughs> so I went, um, went back to the law and I did it for a year. Mm. I thought I must force myself to yes. do it for a year. And then I walked away from it. I said to Heidi, 
I said, I suppose you wouldn't like to give me my old job back. And she said, oh, I didn't like to suggest it. And so I went back and it all really started from there. And all these people said to me, people in AA, people in, I knew, all these people um, said to me, but, you know, all those degrees, all that mm. education, mm. you know, why would you want to go back to the food world? Mm. And um, I remember the senior partner of the firm of solicitors saying, remember, Clarissa, there is neither money nor glamour in cookery. <laughs> uh, I used to ring him up from time to time. <laughs> he proved him wrong. Yeah, so. <laughs> and um, so that's what I did. And that's where I met Pat Llewellyn and went on from there. But um, it was... Um, yes, I mean, the world... The world values things, I suppose they value education, not so much for the pure education of it these days, but for the money it can yes, bring you. Yes, yes. But, you know, most of us live a fairly long time mm. and spend most of our time working. And if you spend all your time just yearning for your holiday because it's a change from what you're doing and you don't like doing it, then... There's something rather insane in that. Yes, yes. I mean, so for you, you'd say cooking is your vocation, something you're called yeah, to do. I suppose so. Um, I, I don't know, vacation sounds rather grand, but, um, <laughs> but yes. Yes, yeah. Yes. Um, and it's where I'm, I'm content. Yes, yes. Um, and yes, there is money and yes, there is glamour in cookery. <laughs> um, but that wasn't why I did it. Um, now might be a good time to have our next piece of music, which is um, Rayform Williams' setting of George Ho Herbert's poem, Love Bade, it, Bade Me Welcome. Are you familiar with that? I am familiar yes. with it, yes. And that idea of love inviting us to feast and our own, in a sense, inability to come forward for that, um, but making that journey, which may resonate with... Absolutely. What I mean, you've been talking about. Um, and quite frankly, you know, I think when I was younger, the most appealing thought about heaven, if there is such a thing, was the fact that it would be full of feasting and laughter. A heavenly banquet. Heavenly yes, banquet. Yes, yeah. I'd like to ask you a few questions about your faith now, but before then, uh, we're just going to have another reading from the Bible, which I know also has significance for you. A reading from St. Matthew's Gospel. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, Were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where are they? 
was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. Then he said to him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. So, Clarissa, would you like to say a bit about mm. that? I mean, that is a very important reading to me. Mm. I mean, it's, it's the reason, I suppose, that I still formally go to church because the, um, you know, as I said, I, I don't necessarily find... Um, Nowadays, there's almost too much going on in the service all the mm, time. You know, mm. there are no still small places. Yes, yeah. Um, but I've always felt that I would want to be that one leper. Yes. The one who went back to say thank you. Yes. Because I think it's very important. I think gratitude is one of the most important of all the... Um, gifts we give to God mm, mm. Um, to remember to say thank you. Yes. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the things that you're told to do by your sponsor from time to time is go and make a gratitude list. Right. And for me, I still <clears throat> begin my gratitude list with the fact that I know where I'm going to sleep tonight, that I will have a roof over my head, and that I will have the first thing I ever bought with the first money I ever earned when I was sober, which was a pillow. Mm, it's a mm. swan's down pillow, and it was rather too expensive for me at the time. <laughs> but as I said, I have great ability to spend money. Um, and um, I still have it. Mm. And I do think that gratitude keeps you sane, in my case, sober, um, and in everybody's case, the better for it. And yes. when I forget to be grateful, which I do from time to time, um, I notice, you know, the darkness twitching. Um, so that is a very important reading to me. Mm -mm. And I used to think when I was young, and I used to hear it long before I started drinking, how awful it must have been for Jesus yes. that the other nine didn't come back and say yes. thank you. And, you know, really, it was a slap in the face. Mm. And I was determined that I would remember. Mm -mm. And it's clearly quite moving for you, thinking about it and talking about it, and, in a sense, knowing that's your right response to God. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, and some days, it isn't always obvious. No. You know, um, why you should be grateful. Mm. You know, if you're having a bad day. And it's actually probably easier if one is a recovering alcoholic, because when I put my head on the pillow at night, if I hadn't had a drink that day, however bad the day has been, mm. it's never been that bad. Um, but, um, you know, it's just something one must continuously remember to look for the, the good things in the day. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and yes, it is very moving for me. I mean, I have a friend who is amazingly good at doing that. Yeah. Whatever the adversity. And it's um, a natural, well, I think it's a natural gift in her that I, that I value and envy. Because very often I think that um, we're taught to ask God for things and not necessarily thank God for things. That's absolutely um, right. And in our public intercessions, and I know because I'm guilty of this myself, most of the time I'm asking God for things on the behalf of the community, but it's much more often about asking than thanking. 
Yes, and I think, you know, possibly asking God for specifics yes. is not a good idea because it's back to this thing about I don't know what the whole picture of my life is. Yes. And if I ask God for a specific and say it was given to me, mm. I might have missed something so much better. Yes. You know, I used to want to be a high court judge. Um, and I now think about that and go, ugh. <laughs> Um, you know, and I would have been a terrible High Court judge. Um, and the things you don't wish for. I mean, I can remember on the day that Barack Obama was first inaugurated, I was restored by Inn of Court because all my contemporaries and friends had now become benchers. Mm. And they all said, oh, it's no fun without Clarissa. <laughs> and I was able to say in the address I gave that evening, I said, you know... It's obviously a great day for camels going through the eyes of needles. <laughs> um, but in his case, it was always going to happen one day. Yes. In my case, this was never going to happen, and it never entered my mind that it would happen. And so I was being quite happy enough just to go to dinner. Wasn't it? God's, God's plans and God's imagination is so greater than anything we could envisage for ourselves. Absolutely. Yes. Just think of being driven around the nation in front of 70 million viewers worldwide in a motorcycle sidecar as a way to fame. <laughs> I couldn't have thought of that one. Um, in terms of being part of the church and uh, the church as a place of creativity, is that something you can identify or do you have a more um, questioning approach to... I've always had a questioning approach to everything, really. Um, but yes, I do. I mean, you come somewhere like this, and I mean, today, mm. they would never build something like this to God. It would no. always be to mammon. Yes. Um, and, you know, there are times when I feel that maybe, you know, the church, and in my case, the Catholic church in particular, has lost its way a bit. Mm. I mean, I know that Christ said, the poor we have always with us, but he didn't actually say that we had to put them before everything else. Mm. Um, and, you know, that I'm not really as much part of a church as I should be, perhaps. Um, you know, perhaps I could do more, but I'm... Um, I've always been fascinated by theology, mm. um, but of all religions. Um, and Christianity does very nicely for me because it's probably the, however bad the times have been for women within the Christian church, they've been a lot worse and in some cases still are in a lot of other religions. Yes. You know, this has always allocated me a soul, if nothing else. <laughs> yes. Um, and I do have this belief, not because I want to have it, but because it's just there, um, in reincarnation and coming back and dealing with another set of questions in another life. I'm not saying that's what I believe. No. But, and I know that the Christian churches before, I think it was the Second Synod of Constantinople or something like that, used to allow the belief in, in, in reincarnation. Um, and when you consider that somebody like two-thirds of the world believes in it, it's mm. only the, the people of the book who don't, um, that I'm not, because I'm not really 
somebody who's, who's good at accepting diktats wholemeal, um, wholesale, um, prepared to believe that the church has all the answers. Mm, mm. Um, but um, maybe that will come when I have more time. Who knows? <laughs> but you, you nevertheless feel, feel a need for it. Oh, I feel it's an important part of my life. Yes. In the sense that it's a solid foundation mm. from which I can, you know, wander away or not. Um, I believe very firmly in God. Yes. Um, and I think I believe very firmly in the God of the Christian church. Um, I don't necessarily always agree with the church. And given that I'm a, a Roman Catholic, um, in this particular time in the Roman Catholic Church, that's perhaps understandable. Yes, yes. Well, we're now going to have a short time of prayer uh, led by our presenter, um, and then we'll have a short conversation after that. So we're now coming to the end of our time. I just wondered, for you, how would you like to be remembered? <laughs> how would I like to be remembered? Um... I think I'd like to be remembered for humour, mm. um, for believing what I say. Mm. Um, you know, I've turned down a lot of money from supermarkets and things like that um, to, um, to go against what I believe in. I'd like to be considered a person of integrity yes. in the sense that I always stood up for my beliefs however um, unpopular they might have been at the time Yes, um, and that I said what I thought um, whether people agreed with it or not mm. um, and also that I was quite happy to allow them the right to say what they thought whether I agreed with it or not mm. Mm. Um, and I'd like to be considered as somebody who loved good food, laughter, the company of my friends, and just generally a good old fat cook. <laughs> well, I'm sure you're known as all those things now, uh, so it can only continue. Um, I mean, hearing about your life, one of huge highs and lows um, which as you say you would never have planned to be where you are now you never thought that your life would take you in this direction if we imagine you as you were when you were 18 and now all these years later you're in a very different place to the one that you might have chosen for yourself it strikes me that in a sense God comes to us, meets us where we are and improvises with the decisions that we've made the circumstances of our lives and considering those things I thought it would be appropriate to end with jazz the performer begins performing not necessarily knowing where he's going or she is going to be <laughs> led um, so it struck me that jazz would be a very appropriate way of closing this service um, I think everybody will thank me join me in thanking you for your candor and your honesty and your humor over this last hour. Um, 
Are you going to say something? I was going to say <laughs> I might not have chosen where I ended up, but I'm perfectly happy with where yes. I did. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, perhaps you'd all like to join me in giving thanks to Clarissa.